This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, what's been going on this week? I was very lucky. I got to see the opening night of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella, and I absolutely loved it. It's witty, it's romantic, it's moving, it's fun and I have to say it's very camp. There's two characters in particular the wicked queen and the evil stepmother who have this brilliant showdown scene which is hilarious and as well as that the music's gorgeous, the cast the singing gave me goosebumps and just being back in a packed theatre I have to say it was an absolute joy. Speaking of joy they've announced the lineup for season Season three of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. There's going to be 12 queens competing. Veronica Green, I don't know if you remember her. I think she was from Lancashire like me. She tested positive for COVID in the last season, so she's back. And there's a queen called Victoria Scone or Scone, depending on where you're from in the country. I think she's from Cardiff. And crucially, she's the first ever cisgender woman to compete. So that's been making a lot of headlines. They've had trans women before competing. Jiggly Caliente and Kylie Sonic Love are in All Styles 6 at the moment. Love them both. They even had a trans man at one point with Got Mig. But Victoria Scone is the first cis woman. And she wants to shake up the definition of drag, proving, as she says, that drag is for everyone. I shall look forward to that. In less positive news, in Birmingham, two men were attacked with bottles, subjected to homophobic abuse, and one of them knocked unconscious in a horrendous hate crime. In the gay village as well, Birmingham's gay village, no, no less, outside Missing Bar, well, you know, we are supposed to be safe in those places. It's a shocking reminder that the oppression and persecution we've suffered isn't, unfortunately, over. And it's a reminder of why we have to stick together as a community. And on that note, let's get on with our show for everyone in our community. And as usual, everyone is welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I am on at Matt Kane Writer. Or if you prefer, you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. However you get in touch, please do connect and please have your say. Now, what have we got in today's show? Let's talk about the guests first of all. I'm going to be joined by Dan Vo. He's a freelance museum consultant and media producer. He's described by the New York Times as a leading figure in the world of alternative museum tours. He actually founded the award-winning V&A Museum's LGBTQ Plus Tours, and he's developed similar programmes for other museums in the UK, really impressive ones too, such as the National Gallery, the National Galleries of Scotland and National Museum Wales. If that isn't enough, he's also course leader on the Gap Year London programme at Sotheby's Institute of Art. 
Dan and I are going to be joined by Lois Shearing. They are a bisexual activist, freelance writer and content marketer, as well as the founder of the Bi Survivors Network. That is a support and advocacy network for bi plus survivors of domestic and sexual violence. They're also an author, having published their first book, By the Way, The Bisexual Guide to Life, earlier this year. And this is what we're going to be discussing. Firstly, is being queer the best thing that ever happened to us? And if you could press a button and change one thing about your sexuality or gender identity, what would it be? Secondly, following the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, we saw statues of known racists being taken down. But should we do the same with statues of historical figures who were known homophobes? Thirdly, with more and more celebrities coming out as bisexual or pansexual, what's the difference between the two terms? Have they become or are they becoming interchangeable? Or is one the more modern, inclusive version of the other? And how much do labels like these actually matter? And finally, with Pride events starting to come back after the pandemic, finally, that's another finally, what are our favourite memories of Pride's gone by? The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Dan Vaux and Lo Shearing. How are you guys today? Doing good today, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. It's good to look at your bright faces <laughs> opposite. Looking forward to getting cracking. Absolutely. We are going to be, I am going to be having a little chat with each of you in between our debates, but I can tell you're both chomping at the bit to get stuck in. So we're going to go straight on to our first subject. So here it is. As, uh, as LGBTQ plus people, a lot of us know that we are different from a young age, but we spend a lot of time wishing we weren't. Often as we get older, we come to realise the many positive things about being queer and we embrace it. Some would even say it's the best thing that ever happened to us. But what do our panel think? What would our panel say? And if we could press a button and change one thing about our sexuality or gender identity, what would it be? Dan, you're looking at me curiously. (laughs) What do you think? Is being gay the best thing that ever happened to you? Look, being gay, being queer, absolutely, because it's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) I've had no other choice in it, really, as well. So it's it's the only life I've known. But I've, I, I was thinking about, you know, just as you were talking, just thinking about what it felt like for me when I was growing up. And so I grew up in Australia. You can spot the Australian accent. I can. (laughs) And and so I'm uh, Southeast Asian. I grew up in this very white sort of um, suburban sort of background. And so I think for me, it was really trying to come to terms with where I fit into the queer community, where I fit into the LGBTQ plus where I fit into the gay community and it was really tough to kind of work out you know how does a Southeast Asian boy fit in and so I think for me the the thing that has changed my mind is that oh I don't really need to kind of you know worry about that part anymore so I've been able to sort of you know take that image of what I thought was beautiful and handsome and and all that and then actually go oh no but I can be all those things as well. I don't have to subscribe to this idea of what society around me was saying was, you know, attractive. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because actually what you've just said is, um, you've just established the idea that we all go on some kind of journey 
to accept ourselves. And I wonder, Lo, um, would you say, knowing that, that we've all gone on some kind of journey, that actually when we get to a point of self-acceptance, or hopefully self-love, it kind of means more and it's all the sweeter for it. Yeah, I mean, kind of very similarly to Dan there, I sort of forget a lot of the time what that journey felt like because it's been so long for me, luckily. I'm very lucky in that respect. Tell me about it. You've no idea how old (laughs) I am. (laughs) That I now only have the kind of the joy and the community that being queer has brought into my life and less of the questioning and the hiding and the internal struggle that I had as a teenager. Do you think, as Dan says, um, you know, the the struggle to fit in, looking at how you're going to fit in, how you're going to work it out, when you then find the answer, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. And, like, I grew up in a very rural community uh, in the south of England. And I came out very young and I was one of the, like, the first queer people to come out in my school. And so there was, like, no community, no resources. And then suddenly when I found kind of bisexuality communities online, I was like oh, this is where I'm supposed to be and everything just sort of clicked into place like very quickly. You know, in my introduction, Dan, I mentioned the idea of lots of us knowing early on or knowing that we're different in some way and wanting that not to be the case. You know, so many people, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will empathise with this, have told me stories about wanting to flick a switch or take a pill and not be different or not be queer or however we were understanding it in our heads at the time. Did you go through that? I, when I was a kid, I had pink stationery and I don't know if you remember Cabbage Patch Kids. I had a Cabbage Patch baby that I would, you know, carry around the house everywhere that that, that would go with me everywhere that I went. So <laughs> I think, uh, I, you know, I, I'm sure that lots of questions were raised with, among my family. But I think for me, I, I, was, I was thinking about that idea of how do we come to accept who 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 we are and, and how do we find acceptance within our community as well and I've got to say when I was sort of growing up in, in Melbourne and sort of uh, getting to the stage where I was coming out I you know went through this torturous period where I think a lot of us going to go through in our teenage years where we're going to go what what is this what's why am I different to everybody else I ended up uh, becoming a volunteer for switchboard in, in Victoria so Victorian switchboard and I think the the sort of the the training that, that you know you go on this extensive bit of training and you you're taught to kind of open up your mind and part of the things that you unlock is this idea of internalized homophobia yes internalized biphobia internalized transphobia and suddenly when you are learning to be taught how to accept others you you kind of learn to to accept yourself as well that's part of the thing that you get out of that as well brilliant right i want to just refocus on the start of the question which is um is it the best thing that ever happened to us i would love you know so we've all hinted at all these brilliant things about being queer lgbt or q or anything any of the letters in the alphabet that are ours um what specific things do we actually like about being queer so i'm going to start with one i like Being on the outer fringes of society or, you know, being able to step aside or step back, but having the same rights as people in the mainstream. I like the point of difference. As a writer, I know lots of writers, lots of queer writers who say it helps them make observations um, from a, you know, a kind of privileged standpoint. We've got one foot in, but we can also step back. Lo, you're nodding. That is one of my favourite things about being queer. Um... I don't know if you've read the book called a Queer Art, The Queer Art of Failure. No, but I feel like I want to. <laughs> I know, it's, it's a great title. But it's kind of about how when you're outside of the margins of what society expects of you, when you're already a quote-unquote failure in the eyes of what is deemed normal, 
it opens up so many possibilities to say, well, I'm already not part of this in-group that you've created. So I might as well go and just do more weird stuff and be more liberal with my personality and who I am. And I feel like queerness has definitely done that for me, that, you know, I'm already kind of outside of the mainstream of what's expected of me. So why not play with my gender presentation? Why not play with my... I'm currently blonde right now, but I'm often very brightly hair coloured. Like, why not do all those things? Well, and it's interesting. We were talking last week about um, LGBTQ plus themed TV shows, films, books. And actually, I was saying, I think part of the thing that appeals to straight mainstream society is connecting with characters, getting inside the heads of characters who are doing that, who were deemed failures. And that's freed them to you know, book expectations and resist um, pressures to behave in a certain way. What about you, Dan? So you were talking about your, um, I nearly said My Little Pony, your Cabbage Patch <laughs> doll in your pink stationery. I was exactly the same. And do you think um, once we have spectacularly failed to conform to any traditional ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a man, we're then free to just kind of invent our own version of it? I think so. I think part of, uh, with me as well, growing up in a Vietnamese background uh, with a Vietnamese family, there, there there is such an expectation for you to kind of get married, to have a child, to carry on the family name. There's this sort of you know patriarchal society, this Confucian sort of elements of society that has been you know ingrained in the way that you're taught to taught to grow up to become something. And I think I I often think sort of that that outsider aspect that you you're both talking about, you know, the fact that we are on the fringes of society, and then also you know you're, you're defying the ideas of what uh, you know your family is expecting your parents are expecting you uh, i think it does make you that little bit more receptive to other people who are the same and so i think when we are at a stage now where you know we are asking for people to stand in solidarity with others and and looking for ways in which we can connect you know find the differences that actually you know are the common the, what we have in common more than our differences really i think that's what really enables queer people to do that because we we know what it feels like to be on the yeah. outside but we also know what it feels like to sort of say well you know, I'm going to open up my arms because this has happened to me before and I'm going to embrace you as you are. Well, interestingly, when you first started talking, you talked about in one of your first sentences, the idea of not fitting in. And at some point in life, there's a shift when the not fitting in as a negative experience becomes a privileged outsider perspective. Don't you think, Lo? Yeah, absolutely. I was a goth in my teenage years, like full on white foundation, black eyeliner goth which went from being kind of something that people very much pointed and stared at to suddenly being this fantastic kind of opportunity to meet like-minded people in different subcultures and all of that stuff. And I think it's kind of similar with queerness, you know, it went from being something that people pointed and laughed at to suddenly something that was this amazing opportunity to meet new people. You know, talking about, um, we mentioned earlier, having one foot in mainstream society and the ability to take one step out. As a bisexual woman, um, do you have that even more so or just the same as any other queer people, do you think? I think it would depend on what bisexual person you asked. Um, so I'm a little bit like gender non-conforming. Um, and so my experience of being a bisexual woman is different from, say, a femme bisexual woman um, and also, you know, different again for people who are non-binary or trans or not white. Uh, but I would say we're still pretty much like it's very similar to other queer people rather than qu closer to straight people, you know? Yeah, I'm actually just thinking when I said bisexual woman, as a gender non-conforming person, are you happy with that term, bisexual woman? Uh, so I identify as 
a gender fluid woman. Oh, so right. the way I describe that is like a woman is like my base camp. It's where I've started and it's where I normally come back to. But occasionally I'll go on little hikes and explore other genders and other gender presentations. Fantastic. I love it. Which again <laughs> is, I mean, who else can do what other group can do that? I mean, what an amazing privilege to be able to do that. Dan, um, Lowe mentioned the idea of subcultures. Um, I One of the things I love is this wonderful traditional legacy of a queer counterculture we have to draw on. Um, is that something that um, appeals to you? <laughs> so I've I've been listening to Lois, so we're going to check the list off. So you've heard, you've got blonde hair right now. I've had blonde hair. You were a punk. I was a punk. Like there's, I think we do kind of explore these different avenues, and it is wonderful to kind yeah. of explore these different avenues. I do love the idea of the subculture, but the interesting thing is often now I'm finding that what was once upon a time subculture. So I grew up in the '90s and uh, you know the early '90s. I feel that the way that media is now, the subculture is really just a culture. Like, I, I, I feel like the word sub has kind of been lost from it. I think it's so impossible now to have so many, you know, cultures running parallel. You know, there's the, sort of the idea of a hege hegemonic, you know, center. You know, this is the only kind of culture you can have now. I feel that's kind of dissipated. I feel it's possible to explore so many different avenues. And so it's possible for people to kind of, you know, in, in really try out different things, experiment. But do you think we have the ability to try out more things and um, to experience more avenues, if you like, than um, a cis, an average, I should say, a cishet person? I, I would like to hope that the fact that there is so many different ways to access information now and to look at, you know, uh, the great things that you can get out of a, you know, a group of people or and some of the things that you, you might look at kind of, you know, I might rethink that for myself. I think that because we have access to all that, I, I hope that they will explore that themselves as well. Right, I'm going to give you another thing I love about it. I must say at this point, actually, years ago when I was having therapy, as lots of us have done, the therapist did this experience, the, the therapy wasn't actually about being gay, but he did this experience where he took out a pad and he said, on one side, write down all the things you love about being gay, and on the other side, all the things you hate about being gay. And I had a massive long list of things I loved, and I couldn't find a single thing to put on. Oh, come on. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> Certainly not that was coming from within me anyway. Um, and we'll talk about that after the break. But before we do, I wanted to ask um, Lo, you know, the idea, one of the, th another thing that I love is this idea of belonging to a community who were all bonded by a shared experience. You know, we've met each other when you walked in here, um, literally five minutes before we started recording the show. You feel, I always feel a kinship. You know, I, w I was on holiday a few weeks ago and, um, you know, when you're in a foreign country and you meet other gays for gay men, you know, I love the fact that we can just instantly start talking. Is this sense of belonging to a community something that appeals to you about being queer? Oh, absolutely. And it's something, as someone who dates women and obviously all the queer women I date, sorry, all the women I date are queer. And, you know, the men I date or have dated, some have been straight, some have been bi. But there, there's a marked difference between going on a date with a straight man and going on a date with a queer person. Because with the queer people, especially of women, as soon as you meet, you have that kind of shared 
connection and shared experience, even if it's just something as simple as like, when did you come out? What did your parents yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with straight men, I find it a lot harder sometimes. I have to work a bit more to find that common ground. You know, it's not built in. I'll tell you one other thing, actually. We're going to have to have a break, but I'll tell you one other thing I love. Um, you know, I've said about feeling that bond with people. I love walking into a bar and thinking, these are my people. And I like the fact that we have a separate kind of queer scene with bars and clubs. You're both nodding very quickly before we go to music. Do you agree with me? I do. I think it's just that idea that, you know, here's a safe space for me. Here's a place I can, you know, just let go and have fun. Our clubs always have better music as well. <laughs> <laughs> So as a gay man, I like the fact that I can have lots of close female friends and I'm invited into their world in a way that a straight man absolutely wouldn't be. Um, what do you think, Lo? Do you like the... I, I feel we have an in with different... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not a, a parcel. There's still issues of sexism within like gay male communities. But I... Maybe it's problematic to say so, but definitely feel a lot more comfortable with kind of my gay male friends, my bi male friends. I very much love my straight male friends, they're great. And as a queer woman, you know, we have that thing in common that we're all attracted to women. Uh, and that's something that we can connect over. But yeah, I do think, you know, in queer communities, we blur those gender lines a lot more and those gender divides. And it does allow for a lot more friendship and community between gay men, women, you know, yeah. gay women and men. I love that. Totally. Right. We've talked about all these things that we love. Dan, if you could push a button and change one thing about being queer, what would it be? Oh, wow. Uh, I, to do with the community, I think, it's how our community can be really, really vicious sometimes. We There's lots of infighting. I don't know if you've ever been involved with like charities or community organisations oh. in the sector. You know, Horrendous. Oh. It's horrendous. <laughs> it's totally horrendous. And actually, um, you know, when I used to, I used to be editor of Attitude magazine, and when you've got any kind of position like that, other people, other gays just want to, well, not all of them, but obviously some other gays want to have a go and take you down. You know, you're nodding, you've experienced it. I'm very sorry you've experienced it. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's inevitable if you're going to be in a group of people where we're trying to hold together, you know, this idea of community when we're really communities, you know, so there's going to be things that will, will make us factionalised. But I wish it was possible for us to kind of, you know, find a way for us to all kind of do a town centre together. You know, that would be the thing I'd do as a button. Like, all right, sit down, work out your differences, and then you can leave the room. So it's like, it's like a complicated escape room where, you know, we can't, until you've sorted out all these differences, and there are so many differences out there I didn't, you know it is a complicated thing that's the thing I would like to just magically wave a wand in fighting within the community can I just say when we, we've done this show for something like 10, 11 weeks now, that's a subject that comes up again and again and again, more than anything else. We've really got to sort it out because everybody hates it. It just, you know, it's it's awful for all of us. Low. So a lot of infighting in the community, queer people having a go at other queer people, often comes from they're them hating in you something they're hating themselves which brings us back to the idea of internalized homophobia dan brought it up before one big thing that um a lot of people say and a lot of our listeners have said to us they don't like about being queer they wish they could change is negative reactions to us from certain sections of mainstream society mm -hmm. um is there something you would like to change 
Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. If I could wave a wand and like homophobia, biphobia, transphobia didn't exist, I would do it in a second. Well, sorry. And I know it seems, seems bonkers that I would ask you that question. But what I was going to say was... In my experience, it was horrendous to be homophobically bullied when I was growing up. Um, But I can see now, uh, I'm not sure if I had the choice, I'd go through it again, but I can see now that it shaped me into the person I am today. It gave me a drive to succeed and prove myself. Yes, it is a problem when we become trapped by that drive, when deep down we still believe we're not good enough, whatever we do, or we carry around the shame you were talking about, Dan. But... um, but, you know, there can be a silver lining to it, do you think? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, we talked about, you mentioned therapy earlier. I'm also currently doing therapy. I think most queer people are or have. Um, my therapist and I talk a lot about kind of like silver linings of things and how you could maybe have built that resilience in that part of yourself without the trauma. Um and I definitely, you know, the kids today, God, I sound so old. <laughs> I'm only in my 20s talking about the kids today. But, um, you know, I think it is much easier for them to come out and to be who they are younger. And I, I do not begrudge that of them. You know, I do not want them to have gone through what we went through. Um, but actually, um, sorry to interrupt, but it is on the same subject. You know, we were talking about the bonds that hold us together. Are those bonds, did, are they born of shared persecution? Yeah, I was going to say, I think I see a lot of infighting online from younger people who haven't had to engage in kind of these very niche little offline or online communities that we found as teenagers with the kind of the passing down of knowledge about queer culture. Um, Because, yeah, it's so much more mainstream now and that's fantastic. But I do think that that does lead to a little bit more infighting because we have less of a common enemy now. And so we've turned on our, on each other and ourselves more as an enemy than this big outside force. Oh, that's really interesting. So, Dan, you know, staying on the subject of internalised shame, um, as gay men, we know there are higher levels of drink, drug abuse, poor mental health amongst queer people in general and amongst gay men. Um, if we are teetering on the brink of falling into a low self-image, in our community, there, there are so many things around that can make it easier you know with these higher levels of um you know drink drugs um promiscuity is that something looking at things that we would maybe like to change is that does that fall into that category for you it sounds like you're describing different ways of escapism aren't you and i think the thing is is that you know in in small doses it's it's good it does allow that but it's when you kind of take that as a regular element you know it becomes an addictive behavior it becomes this need for validation you need to get higher and higher levels of it in order to feel that you're kind of you know um, giving yourself that escape or being able to get back to what you you know to to, to get away from what you want to get away from so I think that the thing is, is that uh, it's really just finding the way that you, you yourself, you uh, can can build yourself up. It's interesting. We've all. We should. I feel like I should be the third person to say yes. I'm also going through therapy. <laughs> oh, I finished. I'm so much older than you. You too. I finished mine years ago. But go on. Tell Did you graduate? Do you get like yes. a little? You know, he told me I was finished and I could leave. I was done. Couldn't believe it after five years. Oh. 
So go on. What were you going to say? Well, yes, I would love that certificate as well. But I think that's the thing. It's just uh, you've got to find the things that makes uh, that, and and you don't necessarily have to find that from the community. It doesn't necessarily have to has to be the way that everyone else is doing it. And I think that's the, possibly the trap with social media that we've got, where you know you kind of look at everybody's wonderfully curated lives in that tiny little square on Instagram or on Twitter. Those you know pithy little one hundred whatever words that you can put in there. If we can look beyond that and actually look at what really makes you a happy, healthy person, I think that's going to be uh, the better thing to look for. I completely agree. Um, Lo, you were talking about silver linings, as I offered one as well. Um, So that's to the persecution we endure when we're growing up. I don't think there's any silver lining to the persecution we experience as adults. You know, I was reading at the beginning this news story about those two men who were beaten up in Birmingham earlier this week. You know, the idea of fear, fearing for our safety and having to risk assess every situation we're in, you know, to turn ourselves down for our own safety, that's something that is just, you know, surely that's something that we'd all change about being queer. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, of course, it's a lot easier for people like me who are white and who look cis than it is for, say, like queer people of colour and disabled queer people when you know you have more things about you that look different to the norm or give off a vibe that you're not part of this mainstream culture and yeah i mean the rise in hate crimes over the last few years has been horrific as kind of our society gets more and more scary not to go down a dark path of this conversation but i i don't think there's any silver lining to it and i hope that well maybe i'm being optimistic to say i hope that our government or someone would would take it more seriously but is that going to happen? I'm not sure. That's a whole other topic, <laughs> isn't it? i tell you what, on this um, topic, Dan, I want to put to you, one of our listeners, Hans, has said on Twitter, um, is being queer the best thing that's ever happened to you? Well, I've never had a life without being gay, so I can't really say if it's the best thing ever. It's just one component of who I am. But, he says, I would make it easier to come out to other people in the never-ending process of coming out, but it never seems to get any less nerve-wracking. Is the need to come out, and for some people constantly come out, is that a downside, do you think, to the queer experience? And can you envisage a time when this won't be the case, won't be necessary? I'm seeing examples where I think, you know, when a child is coming out to their parents, the parents are so loving and accepting of it. But I don't think that even when it's a very positive experience, it doesn't actually remove that, that the nerve wrackingness of it. And I think that's always going to be the thing that we will always connect on. You're absolutely right, Lois. It is the, the coming out experience that, it, that we connect on. But I, the, the other thing that I, I think is that, you know, we are seeing uh, this, this rise in hate crime, but we're also seeing that people are better at supporting each other on it. And I'm seeing that, you know, we are getting better at understanding our differences and and, and looking at the way that we can better support the more more often marginalised parts of our already marginalised community as well. And I think that at least that's something that I'm seeing that our community, our society is doing that I think is quite good. Okay, we're out of time. I'm just going to ask you, I want to end on a really positive note. So if you two were doing a list on one side of things with your therapist, things you didn't like and things you did like, which would be the longer list? It's going to have to be the good side, right? (laughs) What do you think, Lo? Absolutely, the longer list would be things I like. You know, the people I've loved, my community that I've met, the opportunities that it's given me. Being queer has been one of the best parts of my life. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. This is Matt Kane, and you're listening to my Sunday roast. And now we're going to have a little break in between our debates. And I'm going to have a nice chat to Dan Vaux. Hello. 
So Dan, tell me, I introduced you earlier, told our listeners about all your wonderful work with museums. Did you always want to, did you always know this is what you wanted to do? Were you a history geek when you were at school with your pink stationery and your cabbage patch doll? <laughs> Not really, no. I think it's something that's come, this is my second career, really. I think I initially started in media and before that, you know, I, I had to do the respectable thing for my parents. I ended up doing a course in business, which I absolutely hated. So I think I always wanted to do something arty, but, you know, I, I had to break free. I, I came over here. So, you know, here I am and I am uh, in my second career. So museums, I think, uh, have always held my interest but I didn't always necessarily have access to them you know it wasn't it wasn't you know in Melbourne in particular you know the distance between where I lived and where the hub of culture was was quite difficult to get to well it's interesting talking about breaking free you've already sown these little hints of you know um the expectations placed on you um so you grew up in Melbourne at a Vietnamese family Vietnamese heritage um you know just the fact that you did a business degree shows that you must have been under so much pressure if you didn't want to do it. What was it that allowed you to finally break free if this was going on till your early 20s? Well, to put it rather simply, it was a book called The Artist's Way. And I kind of went through the book. And by the time week 12 came around, I was like, right, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to buy a ticket one way to, to Britain. I'm going to get that youth mobility visa. And here I am. And, and I've been here for about, you know, 10 or, or so, more than a decade now, which is nothing that I'd planned. It was just sort of almost serendipitous that I ended up in this country. And it just, again, this is a cultural hub of the world, right? So we have so many different museums and so many and the accessibility to it is so much higher than what I felt. You know, you can walk into any place for free here. And I think that's the thing that made it suddenly go, oh, wow, this is something that I could possibly reach for. Well, can I just say, it wasn't always the case. That happened in 1997 um, when a certain government got in. I'm not going to talk party politics. <laughs> but they suddenly made all the national art collections and museum collections free for us to experience. That was like the most amazing thing. It hadn't been the case before then, which I'm sure you know. I'm just saying it for our listeners. But Tell us, in terms of working in museums, so we've discussed on the show in previous episodes, but I'd love to get your opinion. Do you think LGBTQ plus people have a duty to educate others about queer issues, our history, our experiences, or should this responsibility fall to those outside our community to find out about our history themselves. So when I was young, one of the things we had to do on Saturdays was go to what was called Vietnamese school. And so you were taught Vietnamese language, Vietnamese culture. I feel that we should put a case for, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be so many people who are going to be very upset with this idea. We should have like queer school. Let's have queer school on a Saturday where we all gather and learn about our history for like, you know, half a day. But it's going to really connect you to the idea that you aren't alone in all these thoughts and feelings, but you're also part of this community. But this community is rich, 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 rich with a heritage that goes back thousands of years across so many countries you know across place time and culture is what I say when I take people into uh, the V&A for example and say you know look at all the galleries in here there's no queer corner we go across the whole world across 5,000 years of human creativity and we say queer people have always existed here now let's celebrate that fact right so I wanted to ask you about this because <clears throat> actually um you know, do you think there's a disconnect between queer history and other strands of history? You know, the idea of othering queer history, what you're saying is you want to find the queer history in every permanent collection um, rather than necessarily ghettoising it in its own um, separate space. I think it does need a separate space because it needs a space that you can say, this is the safe space now to think about this. You know, And here is now a very focused, dedicated 
sort of way of looking at this topic. So that that space is needed, but I don't think that you can get away with the other subjects, you know, the other topics, the other museums, for example, not doing it as well. So I've kind of, you know, come in with my Queer Britain t-shirt. and You have got a Queer Britain t-shirt on. Tell me about it because there's this... Is this specifically about the proposed queer museum in it, London? It absolutely is. And so we're a charity. We're seeking to become the first bricks and mortar museum of LGBTQ plus history. And on one hand, it is very much to say that's what our focus is. But I think it also become this focal point, the center point where all the other museums can also go. We've got things in our collection that we would like to celebrate as well. Can you give us some advice on that? Can you tell us, you know, how to how to best tell that story? How can we connect with our local communities? That's the most important part. How can we connect with our local LGBTQ plus communities to work with them to co-curate these stories, to share these stories? And what stage is the um, funding for the museum or the development of the museum at? Is it going to happen? It will happen. Uh, very excitingly, we're about to write our most exciting document ever, the business plan. <laughs> so that's going to hit the website very soon. But I think the the thing is, you know, uh, we've been slightly slowed down because of all the things that are happening around. So that's, you know, that's a fact. So we've, we're going to recalibrate, but we will have a bricks and mortar and we are going to have uh, some pop-up spaces in between as well. So some meanwhile spaces. Fantastic. I love it. Um, in the meantime, while we are waiting for the museum to happen, as well as these pop-up spaces, can you tell me about the LGBTQ plus tours you've organised? So is the idea that you, I mean, I'm, correct me if I'm being completely reductive, but you take people around the specific queer exhibits and elements and point them out and bring them all together Absolutely. Uh, at the V&A, the, the advantage of that is that we get to go across the world in a way. You know, all the different galleries have things from all around the world. I've also done them at uh, University of Cambridge Museums, and that's really interesting because each one, each museum is very different. So you've got a science museum. So you're looking at the history of LGBTQ plus people, the contribution of LGBTQ plus people to science or to natural history or to, you know, the Fitzwilliam, it's art and design as well. You've got the Polar Museum. That's really interesting because you're going to talk. The what museum? The Polar Museum. Penguins. Oh, really? oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so but that's the thing. Gay penguins. There's <laughs> loads of lesbian penguins at London Zoo. They've got loads of um, couples, same-sex couples. Yeah, there's definitely lots of same-sex uh, penguins that raise chicks together <laughs> yes. as well, which is really exciting. And, you know, the visual for that is just brilliant, right? Little penguin. You know, Love it. Well, there's even the kids' book on Tango Makes 3. I've read it to all of my nephews Aww. and my niece. No, it's fantastic. Same-sex animals is really is a really interesting topic. Sorry, I'm interviewing you. <laughs> Tell me about, so your first LGBTQ plus tour that you designed at the V&A, um, if that's your home base, what's your favourite exhibit to show people? Or do you have a favourite exhibit? I can't choose favourites, but I can. So my favourite is probably going to be, um, it's, it's, it, it reaches back to my history of Australia again. You know, it's this, this really lovely, oh, actually, I want to choose the second one as well, sub one Go as on. well. <laughs> so the first one, just to say Peter Travis, who's a gay man who designed the Speedo for the world, but we've got a ceramic in the collections, which is brilliant, you know. Uh, I think the second one that I will now choose and say I should have chosen that first is really, it's a set of ceramic glazes. And it, it's a what, sorry? Ceramic glazes. So they're sort of like, almost like sharp pointed shark's teeth. Just imagine shark's teeth, but they're different colored. So it, it forms a rainbow. And it's by an artist named Emmanuel Cooper, who was a brilliant writer for queer rights as well. You know, he was, uh, he was writing for, 
for uh, for he was a magazine writer. He was an activist as well, and he was really thinking about how we can use art to tell the story of LGBTQ plus people as well. And he wrote one of the first books that looked at you know basically what I'm doing. You know, I'm taking you in to show you the queer artist, the queer history. He did a book in sort of the the late 70s that did that. So it was groundbreaking, but of course lampoon for it. But I think his his writing and he's a very influential person in terms of uh, looking at VNA ceramics as well. He was a very very important ceramicist. I think you know uh, being able to to come back to that particular piece and just to to touch base with it and to be able to take thousands of people to it and say this is the story of a man who was a brilliant artist but also fought for our rights and and here we it vibrates with history our queer history it's right here I think it's those sort of exhibits that are really exciting can I also say there, there are you going to have a third uh, yeah well I have to now <laughs> what happened when Bolton Museum had their exhibition. And it was amazing. Had you in it. Yes. And then they did a monologue. What I really loved about that was yes, making history alive, you know. So my um, hometown of Bolton had a queer history museum, a queer history exhibition, which was a traveling exhibition from um, <clears throat> From London, the from the British Museum, but they um, they reworked it so it fit to Bolton. So they had um, and they had a whole display on me and all my kind of Madonna records <laughs> from when I was growing up, and um, all the like tickets for my first Madonna concerts, all these pictures of me as a kid hating hating it and wanting to get out because everybody hated me for being gay. Um, but they had loads of local things and it was amazing. And yes, they brought them to life with specially commissioned monologues that were performed by actors and it was amazing. And actually all these things that you're doing, the tours, that kind of thing, it's just taking museums to a whole other level, isn't it? And I love the fact that you actually, you do stuff for the V&A, Museum of Art and Design and Science. You know, I mean, talk about breadth of experience for you. Uh, you know, it's freelancer life. You go wherever you need to go. But I think the thing is, is that it, you know, like that, like that wonderful monologue. It is really just trying to make it as accessible as possible, making it alive for people. So when people go, you can say to them, "This museum, we don't just look at queer history; we celebrate it, and you're part of that. You are living queer history, so we're celebrating you." I love it. To end on that rousing note, and I want to sign up for your queer school <laughs> lessons on a Sunday. Although before you go, just tell us, before we um, pause for some music, tell us who wrote that book that, that changed your life and made you break free? It was The Artist Way by Julie Cameron. Fantastic. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. My sensational panel, Dan Vaux and Lo Shearing, are still here. And now we're going to be talking about statues. We've already touched on the um, topic of history. But last year, following the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a big discussion about whether we should take down public statues of known racists or specifically slave traders. Some famous examples are here in the UK, Edward Colston in Bristol, Henry Dundas in Edinburgh, Cecil Rhodes at Oxford University. The argument for this is that these people shouldn't be held up for celebration in contemporary society when our values have changed so much. The argument for keeping them standing is that if we lose them, we could erase history, possibly lose the chance to learn from it. Some of them have been removed, and not just in the UK, but around the world. But if we're taking down statues of known racists, shouldn't we also take down statues of known homophobes. I'm delighted that we are joined by two special guests. First of all, we've got Michael Bronski. He is a professor 
of the practice in media and activism in studies of women, gender and sexuality at Harvard University. His latest book, A Queer History of the United States for Young People, was published in 2019. And our second guest is Flair McInnes. They are a PhD student at Oxford University studying oral history and trans-feminine experiences in feminist spaces in 1970s and 80s Britain. Michael and Flair, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Sunday Roast. Hello. <laughs> Glad to be here. Fantastic. Right, I'm going to start with Fleur, just because you're in the UK. Which would you say are the most problematic statues from this point of view in our country? I mean, all of the ones mentioned, pretty, pretty honourable. Um, the Robert Milligan, East London statue as well, who was a slave owner. What um, about from the point of view of queer history and politics? I think it's kind of important to remember that having the kind of like label of homophobe isn't necessarily always as well documented as having one as slave owner because often it was just pretty normal in society to be very homophobic and so I think it's often sometimes that gets overlooked I think that part of it just because it was such a societal norm to have those views. Oh that's interesting and what about so Michael from your point of view in America are there any that stand out to you as particularly offensive? Not really. I'm sort of inclined to agree with Flora that if you begin to take down statues of homophobes, that we'll take down all of them essentially. <laughs> uh, which, you know, which, which might be okay to actually begin from the bottom <laughs> up and start from scratch completely. You know, but there, 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 there are people. You know, I mean, let's just say, uh, I, and you know, a really outstanding homophobe is Roy Roy Cohen, but there, there, there are actually no statues to Roy Cohen up because he's hated by everybody. Well, interestingly, Michael, here in the UK, we've got um, Lord Baden-Powell, Robert Baden-Powell, who founded the Scout Movement. There's a statue to him at the waterfront at Poole, um, Poole Harbour. <laughs> and yeah, so it's interesting. So that was, there was a whole controversy. Actually, I can't even remember whether it was taken down in the end, but it was, it was protected, it was taken away, you know. But, um, but it was because of his racist, fascist and homophobic views, which were well documented. As Fleur says, they're not always documented. I wonder if he were just homophobic, this would have been enough. Um, I suspect the racist views, Fleur's smiling. Why are you smiling? Um, well, because so recently there were plans to unveil um, a £100,000 statue of Margaret Thatcher in Grantham, where she was from. Uh, and it only really seems to have not gone through because the pandemic has kind of had to redistribute funds. So I feel like the answer is no, it's being homophobic doesn't do that much. I mean, Thatcher implemented Section 28 and they were still going to put a statue of her up. So, Well, interestingly, can I just say, I want to get Michael's perspective on this, but I, I'm 46 years old. I grew up. Um, I remember Section 28 being passed. The um, the rule, just in case any of our listeners don't know, a law brought in by the Conservative government in 90, the late 80s, I think it may have been 88, which said that no local council, anybody in their employ could say anything which promoted, in inverted commas, um, gay um, identities or experiences. I personally feel like I would not want to walk past a statue of Margaret Thatcher. Um, but it was under Henry VIII, that sodomy was first criminalised in 1533. It wouldn't bother me to walk past a statue of him. Michael, do you think it's it's often about personal experience and 
emotional, um, you know, what we find triggering, and that can sometimes cloud this issue. Sure, I think that's completely the case for many people because we actually respond with the emotions that we've been living with for the past however many years we've been living with them, um, right? So I certainly have far more visceral reactions to Lindsey Graham in the Senate than I do to uh, Cotton Mather, a Puritan preacher from 1650, <laughs> right? Who was really homophobic. Um, but can I just go on, uh, the Lord Baden-Powell example is interesting, right? Because there's good, there's good evidence that Baden-Powell was actually very attractive to men and boys. So we're dealing with, if you read the diaries, if you look at the stuff and all the naked, he used to take pictures of naked boys bathing. In fact, he insisted they bathe naked so he could take photos. Um, so it's interesting. There are people who are completely horrible and homophobic in one way and may very well, or colonialist or racist and may very well be queer by our standards of queer. Oh, this, right. this is getting very complicated and multi-layered. I'll tell you what, Michael, um, just take it back a bit. Do you, so we, we introduced this subject by mentioning the um, racist people who were commemorated by statues. Mm -hmm. Do you think from this, when we're discussing this subject, there's any difference between racists and homophobes from a moral point of view rather than surviving historical documentation? Or should there be when we're talking about this kind of thing? I think that I want to be very careful with what I say because I don't want to equate homophobia with racism because they're really, really, really different. And they're really different over there and they're really different over here. And, you know, they play out very differently. I certainly injuries to human rights and injuries to people, I think can be equated um, in a general way. And I would certainly do that, but I would be really loath to say that um, Margaret Thatcher's odious as she may be, according to The Crown, which I watched on, on TV, uh, <laughs> right, was as bad as a slave trader. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's I mean, it's like, it's, it becomes like the oppression Olympics, doesn't it? Whose persecution, whose lived experience yeah. is worse? And you can, and that, com that conversation always gets into trouble. What do you think, Fleur? I'm gonna bring, yeah, our, I'm mean... gonna bring our panel in in a minute, but just tell us what you think before then. I think that they can both be bad things that are important subjects to think about in their own right. I don't think we need to make comparisons necessarily because I often think that comparisons just lead to conversations which they detract from what we're actually trying to focus on. And if we're thinking about who we want to be represented in our history, I don't think we necessarily have to compare oppression and marginalised identities in order to come to the conclusion of what we should be doing. Fantastic. Right, Dan, let's bring you in now. So, um, Michael and Flair both hinted that people often justify, um, you know, they hinted that, you know, in those days, homophobia was the norm, so it may not have even been documented. People often justify historic homophobia by blaming that social context. Does this wash, do you think? Is it a valid excuse for historical homophobia? I think it is possible for us to look at these people and sort of say, you know, what they said back then, mm, let's compare it to what, what our societal position is today. And it is possible to say, well, that is wrong. Because if we don't do that, how do we learn from history? And I think mm -hmm. this is a really interesting thing with Baden-Powell. I think I'm with Michael on this one. There is there is elements of Baden-Powell's biography that's really interesting. Because if you look at it, it, it sort of it, you can sort of see that there's a relationship that you had with a person who was in the 13th Hussars as well, who was Kenneth McLaren. And it's very likely that he fell in love with this person. 
person. You know, it, it's potentially that this was a, a, somebody who had a really important role in his life. And so that's really interesting to consider in that context as well. Well, he could have been internalised, an internalised homophobe and then therefore publicly um, denouncing gays because to cover to um, put people off the scent. Do you know well, what I mean? Possibly. I think, you know, you're probably going to have more uh, chance pinning him on, you know, potentially what he did in the Bo Second Boer War that, uh, you know, it puts him at, in, in, in more in the category of, you know, the idea of this idea of racist statues being pulled down. So I think that is part of the complication of like looking into the history and kind of looking who was homophobic and who wasn't homophobic. And uh, but I think it is possible to go back and go, well, let's let's pause. Let's stop. Let's actually reflect on what's here. Um, and and then let's learn from history. And I think that's part of what you might have been talking about last week, that idea of gay reparations. Let's let's look at how do we say sorry. You know, as a government now, we should, you know, the government's here and the government that one of the biggest exports from Britain has been homophobia. It has been anti-homosexual laws that have gone to so many countries, more than half the Commonwealth countries out there um, that have uh, anti-homophobic laws. You know, more than half the, com the countries that out there that have anti-homosexual laws are Commonwealth countries. A, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, absolutely. But um, I don't think that's, an excuse for them not to repeal them. They've had plenty of time since we weren't in control to repeal them. But I, absolutely, we need to know where they came from. Um, right, low. So what I'd love to know is, um, we can. so there can be some people who achieved great things and made a massive contribution, but were also homophobic. And, um, you know, as we are saying, as, as Michael and Flora have said, so many people were. Um, are we sometimes guilty of seeing politics through the prism of our specific situation as LGBTQ plus people. I'll give you a quick example. I used to really admire Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, when she voted against equal marriage in Germany. My initial response was, right, I've written her off. But then I thought, actually, do I need to stop and just think, um, you know, we can't view everything through the prism of our own. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I think we can definitely be quite tribalistic as a community. Um, but I would say that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, as much as I would love it if it weren't the case, there aren't always huge swaths of, of straight people advocating for our rights and advocating for, you know, our liberties. And so if we're not the ones to speak up and say this was wrong of Angela Merkel, um, then who is? You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable for us to say if you vote against our best interests, if you campaign against our best interests, no matter what other good you've done, uh, and I don't know enough about German politics to say how much good she's done, but, you know, we can still say you, you are harming people through these policies. Yes, great. Right, coming back to our historian's flair, thinking about statues is the problem with public art specifically when you literally have figures not even metaphorically raised up on pedestals for our admiration is um you know that's where that expression comes from is what this implies problematic when we're looking at um you know somebody's life rather than just their achievements yeah i think i mean i'm a big kind of i don't necessarily disagree with any of the statues being up. I think it depends on the context. But I also think that in that case, we need to be fine if, you know, our society decides that actually we want to pull them down. Um, I think that can be a historical moment in its own right. And I think that that also would contribute to us learning from history. I think far more people learn about Colston once the statue was pushed into the harbour than they would have just walking past it on a normal day. Absolutely. Um, Michael, 
Um, what about the idea that these statues, that a way to fix it is to take them out of the public, um, out of the off the streets, put them in museums where we can give more context and offer a more nuanced understanding of the these figures' contributions to society. Sure, I think that's actually in many cases a, a very good idea. I mean, certainly here in the U.S., I'm happening with lots of people who were generals with Confederacy, right? Which I have to say, as a, well, some some many owned slaves, right? But these were men who actually uh, had an armed war against the Republic. <laughs> so they were not like colonialists. They were like far, far, far more egregious. Not that colonialism isn't really egregious. Um, I did, I, but also I think just making up making up a new signage, making up new new placards to explain to people. Well, the problem um, would be useful as well. Absolutely. The problem with this is sometimes, um, so they, they tried to do this with a statue of Henry Dundas in Edinburgh and people couldn't agree on the wording because um, what do mm -hmm. you, what do you, I mean, it's, it's going to be really difficult, isn't it, to get it right in some cases? It, it is. I mean, I think, the, I hate to be really obvious, but uh, people are really, really complicated and history is really, really complicated and people never agree on anything. <laughs> so, you know, putting up a, a placard, let's just say a, a non-political person like Radcliffe Hall, Yes. Who were of loneliness and, you know, possibly was transgender, certainly was a lesbian, um, you know, had abhorrent views, was pro-Nazi in many ways, was completely anti-Semitic. I'm not for taking down pictures of Radcliffe Hall, but I am for putting up a rather large size plaque next to her picture <laughs> and explaining um, the complications of who she was. We have got some comments from listeners that came from social media. Luciana on Instagram says, yes, absolutely, we should take them down. They certainly do not deserve to be celebrated. Steve on Twitter, I think they could be removed, but not hidden away. The concept of statues is quite outdated, as it used to be a way to transmit information about a person's perceived greatness. If not removed, then I think a plaque explaining the relative cultural differences would be a good idea. We should never erase history, but we can say that we don't like the historic values. One more, let's have Dickon on Twitter. He says taking them down would be a step too far. There's a big difference between slave traders and homophobes, as Michael and Flo were saying earlier. Besides, where would you start? Queen Victoria? Thatcher? Well, we've already covered her. Um, Thinking about this, Fleur, something you said earlier about how history continues to live on. Some of these statues that are left standing, whether it's racist or homophobes, end up defaced, covered in graffiti. Is that a problem or is that just living history? Is that just a sign of how it conflicts with modern values? Yeah, I personally think it should be kept. I think when we kind of, I think often when we think about history, we think of it as this static thing and not something that is written and argued. There's a reason that historians can never agree with each other. Um, and so I think to kind of constantly be pretending that people aren't uncomfortable with these statues being up um, is essentially erasing history because it's it's the public expressing their opinion about something and to kind of continue pretending that 
people don't care about it, I think is an issue, you know, like it's, and I think in terms of thinking about like cultural artifacts, these are going to be really big things that I think we should think about preserving rather than trying to hide them and protect, you know, the statues of Winston Churchill and things like that. Like we should let people express how they feel about it. Michael, you were nodding through most of that. I, I was, and I would say there's a line in Shulamith Firestone's book, um, The Dialectic of, of Sex, where she says that history is not a snapshot, it's a motion picture. Oh, and great. I think, you know, that we're all in history. I mean, history's happening outside my window, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, it's got very quiet a minute ago. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but what, you know, if somebody throws paint on um, a statue, I, I was thinking of like Lord, Lord Kitchener. Kitchener? Kitchener. Yes. Right. You know, then leave the paint up and if somebody wants to clean it off, they can clean it off. And then they, somebody else can throw eggs at it. And that's actually history playing itself out. Okay, fantastic. I want to bring Dan in. He's got loads to say. I can tell from you first. Right, before I ask you a question, go on, tell me what you want to say. Well, I was going to say the policy at the moment, if you were to talk to historic England who have the uh, make the advice on whether or not you take a statue away, is to say retain and explain. Now, it's a it's an interesting policy. It rhymes as well, which is really useful. But I, what I love about is not just when you throw paint on a statue, it's when an artist actually intervenes on a statue. So Rhodes, who, again, we're now naming another person who's probably, you know, a latent homosexual as well. Um, Anthony Gormley uh, said the one in Oriel College, now they're not going to remove it, so he says, why don't you turn it around? So he, he has to look at the wall in shame. Oh, We've great. also very recently had Daniel Lismore, who, uh, working with Sky Arts and the Cultural Liverpool Statues Redress Project, was actually put uh, Benjamin Disraeli in a beautiful, fabulous uh, sort of rainbow gown and bright golden hat and it was really to one make a, a commentary about Disraeli as a flamboyant dresser but also look at that idea of how one of the things that happened in that era was the exportation of these anti-homosexual laws all around the world and that's what I love about these ideas of the artist intervention it makes so much more impact than just the plaque Colston you know before he was pulled down an artist had come and uh, wool bombed him so you know had yarn bombed him and so had knitted for Colston a ball and chain in bright red one the colour of blood but too, also the colour of, you know, the, the British red coats. And I think it was a really, really striking statement, which I think, you know, says more than a plaque does. And removing into a museum, we don't necessarily want them in museums. <laughs> <laughs> right, brilliant. Lo, I want to come to you. So we're talking about the idea of living history. If people deface these monuments, that's, you know, a sign of the clash between their values and ours. Um, what if we had a statue of um, a historical figure from our community and it was defaced with homophobic graffiti? How would you feel about that? Do you think that that should be kept up? Because is that equivalent to what we've just been talking about? Or there was a famous case a few weeks ago, actually a couple of months ago, there's a mural of Alan Turing just off Canal Street in Manchester that was defaced. Um, they fixed it, they got rid of the graffiti. What do you think about this? No, I mean, I think that's a, a completely different topic. You know, that's uh, the difference between public dissent and hate speech. Um, so, for example, uh, I know in mainland Europe, often uh, tributes to Holocaust victims get graffitied with, you know, Nazi paraphernalia and hate speech. And of course, that's not people, uh, you know, calling out problematic history. That's just straight up 
that's a hate crime. <laughs> and I think it's very similar to people writing homophobic slurs on the, the mural of, of Turing or what happened with Marcus Rashford recently after yes. the football. Um, and so there's a big difference, you know, between protest and and hate speech. And I think it's really important that we make that difference. But if these people are hating within our society and putting up public, a public monument to somebody is potentially going to attract hate speech, public art is problematic, isn't it, in itself? What do you think... Um, you know, thinking of the best ways to commemorate contributions that people from our community have made to society, the best ways to disseminate queer history in general, um, do you think public statues should be a big part of that or do you think we should be looking elsewhere? Well, I, speaking on a very personal note and very anti-statue in general, um, I would consider myself an anarchist and I think the idea of building a statue to someone, to anyone, creates these kind of false hierarchies. And given how much oppression there has been throughout all of society, throughout all of history, I don't think you can pluck a single figure from history and say, this person was fantastic and warrants this, this statue. Um, so an example would be, say, uh, Viscount Acaster, Acaster, I might be pronouncing that wrong, uh, who was the first female MP. That's amazing, right? But she also had extremely far right views. Oh, um, Nancy, Viscountess Astor, Nancy Astor. Nancy yes, Astor, yes, yes, sorry. Yes. No, um, absolutely, yes, yeah, sorry, carry on. And similarly, you know, we're talking about taking down statues of homophobes, but actually a lot of, of queer and gay people throughout history have done very terrible things. Um, and so I think now we're kind of very much past the point of statues. I think creating memorials uh, and public art and education in other ways is much more beneficial. Okay, brilliant. Michael, um, how do you, I mean, so Lois said that they're anti-statues. Do you think, can we commemorate, should we shift to commemorating the good work certain people have done rather than commemorating the whole person, man, woman, their life, which can get us into problems? Sure, I think that makes sense because any person has a multiplicity of good and bad uh, things within them. Um, and if you, you know, if, if you bring up something good they've done, somebody can point out something bad. I, I do think that Lowe's point about not having statues is an excellent one because um, they're really old fashioned. <laughs> um, not to mention the fact that they probably cost a great deal of money to make. <laughs> uh, it's an art form that's out of style. I think uh, doing other public art forms makes much more sense. Um, I mean, certainly I know here that there are several statues of generals that were people had attacked or pulled down or not pulled down, and people began doing visual projections at night against them. It's always, right. yeah, and it's interesting that you say it's an art form that's out of, um, that's outdated. It's always weird when they put up statues, like they unveiled one to Princess Diana a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know, um, there was a Mary Wollstonecraft one. They always come in for criticism, don't they? Would you say, Fleur, there are better ways to um, commemorate people's achievements than statues in their likeness. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the issue with statues as well is it just, it reduces it to the point where there's no room for nuance. And so it gives a really unrealistic representation of what we actually value in history, because I think it's sort of problematic to suggest that we just value these, you know, one or two things that someone does over their lifetime. It should be about kind of like looking at development and values and things like that. I, I often wonder who we're putting these statues up for 
at the moment because like you said they often are faced with lots of criticism I'm wondering who who thinks that they are a good thing to sort of you know unveil a new statue in 2021 it just like you said it just seems very outdated so what's your so Dan what's your take on this in terms of all you know you've pioneered different ways of disseminating history um what do you think is the most appropriate now or not like there's only one way but you know what what should we be, what direction should we be moving in queer britain was asked to do a bit of work for the mayor of london in terms of looking at the uh, commission for diversity in the public realm and looking at things like this looking at what how do we memorialize, memorialize people and i think one of the most striking examples that we came across was in manchester there's the transmemorial garden and just it's a it's an abstract bit of sculpture that's in a bit of garden and i Off think canal street it's amazing on the other side of the water you've seen it i haven't had a chance to see it but i think that's the thing it's it is living and breathing as well and uh but it, it, at the same time it memorializes people who we've lost as well and i think that something like that something that you kind of go in and experience and can sit with and can actually think about and the fact that it's not just one person it's actually a group of people um and can I think that's the thing. When we look at history, you know, often it's not just a singular person who, who makes and changes history. It's, you know, whole groups of people. And I think that's the thing. Looking at how the community can be uh, commemorated, I think, will be quite a, a striking thing. And if you kind of look around the world as well, you know, there's so many pink triangle gardens or memorials as well in different parts of Europe that sort of look to serve to, to, to sell, um, remember the people who were victims of uh, the Nazi Holocaust, you know, who had to wear the pink triangle. And I think, again, it's it's abstract and it also is you know it memorializes many many people but is that easier in that instance because these people are in some ways abstract um you know it wasn't one person who did an amazing achievement it was people whose whose lives weren't really recorded as they should have been and do you know what i mean they were they were erased from history for so long so actually having something abstract is quite an appropriate way to do it well i think you know if we go back to baden powell for example you know we're commemorating one person but i think the scouts movement now exists without him and if you look at what the scouts do now you know they've got uh, i i know of a troop that is in manchester as well they've put trans pride colors on their uniform because one of their troop is is, is transgender and i think that's really beautiful and that idea of how you know diversity and inclusion is thriving with this within this group that is beyond baden powell who founded it you know i think that's the thing if we can look at the group you know i think that that's a that's a really well and could you not argue that the scout movement is the ultimate tribute to its founder if it's still here all these years later that's a living historical movement isn't it you know do you need a statue in his likeness lo you're nodding you've already said you're anti-statues <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I, I agree quite a lot that there's... I, I didn't, hadn't heard of the Trans Memorial Garden in Manchester. That sounds really lovely. I'll have to go there next time. But I think there are so much better ways. And it's it's interesting to hear kind of the consensus that a lot of people think statues are outdated now. Um, that's something I was thinking about a lot when I was thinking about this question. I think sometimes when we have these conversations, we think of them about like old trees that just sort of are there. And we don't think about the context of how they got there. So I know... Um, in America, a lot of the statues to Confederate generals weren't put up after the very soon after the Confederacy. They were put up during the uh, the Jim Crow era, um, kind of as like a signal to the like emerging Black liberation movement at the time. And I think it's really important when we look at these statues to not only look at what they say now, but to look at the context of why they were put up. 
Um, Michael and Fleur, so we've talked in the past on this show about how uh, how our, as a community, our history has been erased, suppressed by historians for a long time. Museum collections, writing us out of history. Do you think museums need to do more to um, promote, to educate, to inform um, the general public about queer history? What would you say, first of all, Fleur? Um, yeah, I don't think we should necessarily put all of the onus just on museums. I think we should be incorporating queer history, but also history about, you know, all the like multiple mar marginalized identities into our curriculum. Um, but yeah, I think that if you're, if you've got a goal to educate the public, then you also have a responsibility to make sure that the education you're providing is, you know, varied and gives a realistic account of what our history is. Our history isn't just about slave owners and slave traders, like queer people who have been around in history, and we also deserve to have our stories told. Okay, we need to finish. Michael, I want to give you the last word. Um, what do you think um, are the biggest dangers to people from within our community not knowing their own history? Why is queer history so important? Well, I think, I mean, one... Thing I said in my queer history book, right, was that there's no such thing as queer history, it's American history. And the point is to actually discover what was queer about American history. Right. So I think I think it I think that young people not knowing the complexity and the completeness of any history is a loss for them. I think that obviously, you know, for African American students not knowing that history is a, a double loss. For queer students not knowing that history is is a double loss. But it's, it's also a loss for everybody that we really can't move forward um, as a, people said, tribal you know, group. But it, it's hard to move forward with a politics without bringing in everybody into that struggle. Okay, fantastic. That's a great point to end. Michael and Flair, thank you very much for joining us. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Kane. You're listening to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. And I'm now delighted to be chatting to Lois Shearing, one of my panellists today. So, Lo, we have to talk first about your book, by the way, The Bisexual Guide to Life, which was published earlier this year. Is this the book you wished you'd had when you were growing up? Absolutely. That's 100% why I wrote it. Um, when I was growing up, as I've mentioned earlier, I grew up in a very rural community. There wasn't much information about kind of anything to do with uh, being gay or being queer. And there was especially nothing to do with being bi that you could find. And so I found all of my information online. It kind of collated it from Tumblr, YouTube, Facebook groups, whatever. Only to find kind of as I got out in the world and read more things that a lot of it was wrong. <laughs> um, and so for me, this book was a project about making it a lot easier for young bi people or young questioning people to kind of have a starting point of that information without having to kind of jigsaw piece it together um, from all these different areas. And what's the reaction to it being like? I mean, have you had young people saying um, this book has really helped them? I have, and it always makes me absolutely tear up when people like message me on Twitter or anything. Um, I had a friend recently who was coming up from Eastbourne, where I'm from, 
Uh, and she was reading the book uh, on the train and apparently she had a teenage girl come up to her and say like, oh, I've, I've been reading that and, you know, it's really helped me with understanding myself. And my friend got very excited and was like, I'm going to see her right now. <laughs> um, so that's been amazing. That's been really, really lovely and kind of honestly made me feel so much better about the world. <laughs> and what do you think the younger you who was desperate for this kind of book would have um, would have thought if they could see you now? Oh man, she would simultaneously think I was super cool and also think I was really lame. <laughs> <laughs> so I think she'd be very proud of me writing a book, but also she'd be a bit like, oh, what's going on with your hair? <laughs> it must have been hard to write the book because you've got a full-time job as well, haven't you? How did you juggle your time? Yeah, it was really hard. Um and I kind of spoke in the introduction of the book that my life sort of fell apart a little bit across the 18 months that I was writing it. We went into lockdown. I lost a job. Uh, my long-term relationship ended. Um, so I was kind of juggling a load of different things and then simultaneously trying to find time to write. But it was just such a pass passion project for me um, that it sort of just eclipsed everything else. <laughs> well, and when you say everything else, you've got a lot. Of other, of other things going on in your life, not least um, the Bi Survivors Network, mm -hmm. which you founded. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little about that? Yeah, so the Bi Survivors Network um, is an advocacy and support network for uh, anyone who falls under the bi umbrella. So that includes like bi, pan, queer, however you identify, uh, who's experienced domestic or sexual violence. Um, and it's kind of because bi people actually experience higher rates of domestic and sexual violence, yet there are less resources available to us. And so the Bi Survivors Network is about offering network and community and support and also advocacy around this issue. Fantastic. And um, we've spoken before on this programme about the prevalence of biphobia, mm. both within the LGBTQ plus community and outside of it. Um, why is it so important that bi people have their own space to discuss these issues? Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It's because of the prevalence of biphobia. So bi activists talk a lot about the concept of double discrimination, uh, which is kind of homophobia and biphobia that comes from mainstream society, but then also biphobia that comes from within the LGBT society or community, however you want to call us. Um, which has been which has been the hardest for you to experience? That's a really difficult question because obviously, you know, laws and systematic oppression against all queer people has much more power in my life. Um, but interpersonally, it just stings so much more when I meet another, like a gay person and they say like, you know, they make some joke about, oh, you'll come out really eventually. And I'm like, well, I'm out now. <laughs> um, or they tell me that, you know, they don't believe in bisexuality. Because or it's I, just a phase. Or it's, it's just a phase. Because I know they've gone through that internal struggle and journey that we talked about a bit earlier. Um, and so for them to invalidate my struggle and my journey when they've had a similar experience, it just feels a lot more personal. Okay, so um, could you also, you've got so many things going on and we've only got a couple of minutes left. Could you also tell me about the Bi Plus Survivors Wishlist? Yes, so that's um, a part of uh, the BSN, the Bi Survivors Network. That is an Amazon wishlist um, 
which if you are a bi survivor and we don't ask any questions that you have to answer to prove you are, you can request that we add items to the wish list and then people can purchase them for you. Um, oh, so it's fantastic. a way of materially supporting survivors. You know, often people might be fleeing an abuse situation and having to start over or they may just want self-care items or anything really. So it's just a, a kind of direct action way if people want to support them. And you've also got your own podcast, The Feminine Art of Radicalisation. Yes, I actually have uh, two podcasts at the moment. So The Feminine Art of Radicalisation is kind of wrapped up. That is not queer related. Although, I mean, arguably, you know, a lot of queer women do somehow end up in the far right, which is very fascinating and links back to what we were just talking about, about how multifaceted people are. Um, but I also have another one called Love Byland, which is talking about Love Island from a bi perspective. <laughs> I love both of them, but that one I've got to listen to. Yeah, it's very silly. Fantastic. And what about in, in the future? I mean, you've got so much going on already. What's, what is, are your plans for the future? Uh, so myself and an incredible bi-activist uh, who's a very good friend of mine called Vineet Mehta, Mehta uh, him and I have been commissioned by JKP, who we both are published by, to write an anthology, to co-edit an anthology called Bi Voices, uh, which is going to be all about what it means to be bisexual in kind of the 2020s and the 21st century. Um, and we're hoping to approach that from a very diverse and intersectional perspective you know we're going to have essays on bi parenting um on bi trans people all of these kind of things and so that's a project i'm very excited to be doing oh fantastic and do you know when that's going to be published roughly Ooh, probably 2022 2023 Great. very early days right now we'll make a date and look forward to it the sunday roast with matt kane virgin radio pride my delightful panel dan Vaux and lois shearing are still with me and now we're going to be talking about bisexuality and pansexuality so there was an article in the national newspaper a couple of weeks ago in which a parent suggested that her daughter's bisexuality was invalid this parent said she likes boys and only said she was bisexual to jump on another woke bandwagon you can tell from the tone of my voice i'm i'm doing this in inverted commas this is a classic example of bi erasure which as many of us know is all too common Lowe hinted at this earlier in her interview. Singer Youngblood recently came out as pansexual, saying, it doesn't matter what genitalia you've got or what you identify as, if I love you, I love you, and that's it. And that's something I've struggled with my whole life because I didn't know what I was. This week, actress Mae Whitman came out as pansexual also, saying on Twitter, I know people might be unfamiliar with what pansexual means. For me, it means I know I can fall in love with people of all genders. This is the word that fits me best, and I'm proud and happy to be part of the Bi Plus community. So, what we're going to be talking about now is, how did bisexual become Bi Plus? And what's the difference between pansexual and bisexual? Or are they becoming slightly different ways of saying the same thing? I'm really excited to be joined by two experts in the field now. First of all, we've got Dominic Arnold. He's the bisexual CEO of Just Like Us, the charity aiming to champion LGBT plus equality, empower young people and let them know that being part of the community is something to be celebrated. Before joining as CEO last year, he previously worked with Mind, the LGBTQ plus mental health service Mind Out, Stonewall and the Shaw Trust. 
Oh, what a list. And I'm also joined by Ramses Oliva. He's an ambassador for Just Like Us, also volunteering with the charity to speak in secondary schools about what it's like to be in the community and how best to be an ally. He is a transgender man who identifies as asexual and pan-romantic. So, Ramses, let's come to you first. What do you see as the difference between bisexual and pansexual? I think there is definitely some level of overlap between the definitions. And um, I think the definition really depends on how someone decided to define it as well. Um, I know that a lot of people, for example, define bisexual and pansexual in different ways. Um, Sometimes bisexual is defined as being attracted to men and women. Sometimes it's defined as being attracted to two or more genders. Sometimes it's defined as being attracted to people regardless of gender. And these are all valid and commonly used definitions. For me, specifically, pansexual and paramantic means that I'm attracted to people regardless of gender. Um, but I know that some people would uh, identify the same as, as bisexual as well. So definitely some overlap there. Fantastic. Thank you. And Dominic, um, am I right in thinking the literal definition of bisexuality is an attraction to people of both genders, pansexuality to people of all genders, but that it's evolved through use, personal experience, as Ramses hinted, and therefore literal definitions are always going to be moulded, you know, in, in society? I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? What is the literal definition? I, I mean, I think as, as long as I've been out, which is uh, sadly quite, quite a long time, um, bi people have always been attracted to all kinds of different people. And in a way, framing bi people as being attracted to men and women is sort of framing bi people in the same way that people of other sexual orientations frame their own sexual orientation. So they will say, I'm attracted to men, I'm attracted to women. But the bi people that I know and have grown up with, the pan people that I know, just simply don't really see it like that. So, um, you know, the best way of looking at it, perhaps for me, is my own sexual orientation, is that someone's, you know, sexual organs are not the defining thing that I see about them as being attractive. And I've been attracted to um, men and women and people that are not men and women um, for all sorts of different wonderful reasons. Um, and, and really that just doesn't sort of come into it. And I think pan people often describe themselves in the same way, which leads to this sort of, well, is that bi or is that pan? And I think you know, people will always, as you say, language will always evolve. People will always find new ways uh, to define their sexual orientation. Um, I, I call myself bi because I've, that's what I've always called myself. And coming out as bisexual was incredibly important to me. So I, I don't, I, that's a term that means a lot to me. And that's why I use that term. Someone else um, might and have uh, referred to my sort of sexual orientation as being pan. And I, d- I don't really mind that either. Okay, fantastic. Ramses, it occurred to me while Dominic was speaking, um, talking about, you know, um, it's so reductive for it to be just an attraction to a particular genitalia. Do you find as a trans person, the term pansexual, panromantic is particularly helpful and fitting? Um, do you know what I mean? In that it's not comfort, it's not reducing things down to um, biology. I'll be fair, I know quite a few trans and non-binary uh, bisexual people, so I don't think that um, the definition of bisexual necessarily, um, you know, is related to genitals or um, excludes trans and non-binary people by itself. Um, 
of course, like people can use it to mean just two genders, and those genders don't even need to include men or women. Uh, but uh, most people that I know use bisexual in kind of like a broader sense as attracted, not just one gender, but multiple ones. Okay, fantastic. And um, before I bring in my panel, and I know Lowe's got lots to say, Dominic, <laughs> could you give me a quick summary of the term bi plus, how it came about, and what you see it's, I know it literal, literal mm. definitions are problematic, but sure. what you see it meaning? <laughs> so for me, and of course, everyone will have a different answer to this. For me, um, bi plus, uh, bi is and has always been an umbrella term that encompasses a huge range of different people. And I think the plus is is an effort to allude to that, to say, look, we're saying, we're using the word bi, but actually the word bi means lots of different things. A bit like the word trans, uh, can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, so the plus is really an effort to, to signal to that and say, look, we're using the word bi, but we mean lots of different bi identities uh, that fall under that. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for that. So I've got to come to you, Lo. So you identify as bisexual, as you've told us already. What is it about this term that you prefer or you find a particularly good fit for you as a person? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just that I didn't hear the word pan until several years after I'd come out. And by that point, the term bisexual already felt like a comfortable old jumper. Um, <laughs> so I feel like, you know, pansexual could fit uh, my attraction. Um, I definitely don't consider myself only attracted to two genders or men and women. Um, but bisexual just feels a lot more familiar and comfortable to me. And that's my personal reason for using it. And I think for a lot of bi people slash pan people, that's a very similar experience that it depends really with which word, which culture, which community. Uh, in my book, I even joke about maybe it comes down to which color scheme you like better. Uh, you know, the, the bi flag is pink, purple, blue, and the pan flag is uh, pink, yellow, blue. Maybe you prefer yellow over purple and that's, that's your choice, you know, and I think that's perfectly okay. Okay, Dan, so what is your take on this as a historian? Because we've talked about how literal definitions evolve. Language emerges from social context, doesn't it? But it can also influence social change. What's your take on this as a historian when we're talking about labels and definitions and terms? I was thinking about this literally in terms of labels that you have in a museum. So in a museum collection, in order to put things into a collection, you have to actually give things labels. And one of the things that was floated probably around about maybe uh, seven to ten years ago was trans star as a way to try and make it more inclusive as well. So it sort of it very quickly became outdated. You know, Trans star. Trans star as a way of sort of saying, I suppose, like bi plus, you know, he's another way of, of, of making it inclusive. And I think that's the thing. These things will. I'm. I'm completely, perfectly happy with these. These. The, the way that things evolve because I think it makes it more inclusive. In this case, I. I first came across uh, Bi Plus via the Vagina Museum. You know, they. They did a very lovely post about it on. And and those you've seen it as well. So. Yeah, the Vagina Museum has got some fantastic resources around that and about kind of how to label things that don't quite fit into categories and binaries very well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing as well, the, that whole idea of the binaries, you know, as we become, I think, more open about the idea of, you know, going beyond binary gender. I think this certainly for me feels like it's something that I think is going to be much more helpful in, in us kind of understanding museum collections as well, historically. Well, you know, there is this movement to kind of shift away from a focus on the binary. Um, and maybe it's partly because of this that um, you do hear, and I've encountered this a lot on social media, the um, suggestion that bisexual, you know, it became popular in the 70s when we didn't have as nuanced an understanding about gender as we do now. You do hear this suggestion that it's 
out of date that it's um that we are moving away from that go on low you You've got something to say about this. Can you just insert like an audio clip of me tearing my hair out? For this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we come across this so much. And I think, you know, a lot of people cite the Bi Manifesto, which was written in 1991, which says uh, there's a line in it that says, do not assume that bi people are only attracted to both sexes. In fact, do not assume there are only two sexes or only two genders. And that was kind of in the very early 90s. Um, so the bi community has definitely had issues with, you know, trans people and non-binary people, as has every uh, queer community, as has, you know, um, gay movements and lesbian movements. But to say that that means the word itself is outdated or binary, I think is very reductive of the activists, including like trans and non-binary activists who were around in the 70s and 80s and from the very beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dominic. It must be hard. You obviously know lots of um, bisexual people speaking for them. It must be hard for older bisexual people to be told the term that they fought for, as Lowe says, as activists, is out of date and they should pick another. Who's anyone else to tell them? Well, I'll thank you for coming to me on that. <laughs> um, I, th- I mean, I, I totally agree. I, th- I think I think the trouble is, you know, that that um, these these words that we find for ourselves are often it often takes us a while to get there. Uh, and by the time that we say I'm bisexual, actually, a lot's happened. Um, and you've had to do a lot of thinking and you've sort of gone over your identity and you've churned all this stuff up. And finally, you get to this point where you're able to say, look, this is me. Um, and um, I'm entirely happy using the word bisexual. I'm entirely comfortable that that word is, isn't transphobic. And I'm really, as, as Lois said, you know, some people could use the word pan for how, how I am. I could use the word pan. Uh, I don't, probably to do with the age and, and how far it took me to get there. So it is difficult mm-hmm. to hear sort of anything negative about the word bisexual, simply because it felt like a bit of a fight getting there. Um, so I'm quite comfortable now that I'm here. Okay, fantastic. I am going to come on to this um, accusation that bisexuality is somehow transphobic a bit after our break. But I want to, at this point, ask Ramesses. So we've talked about the history of the term bisexual. And there is a rich cultural history to bisexuality, which I imagine appeals to some people. And other people, do you think the newness of the term pan, the fact that it isn't as loaded and doesn't come with associations does that have an appeal for younger people like you i think there's definitely a push for labels to become way more nuanced and way more uh, specific when it comes to sexual orientations um some other terms i've heard for example to discuss something similar are omnisexual uh, or instead of b plus using terms as multi-spec or m-spec uh, to cover all attractions of multiple genders so there's definitely uh, a push for trying to create new terms uh, that are way more specific and describe way more in detail uh, sexual orientation. But I think that this is something that's kind of happening alongside embracing all the terms as well. Uh, there's definitely part of the community who's very attached. Um, this doesn't have to do with you know the age of the person using the label, but uh, there are people who feel way more connected with the um, LGBTQ plus history and community who prefer to embrace kind of like broader known terms. And there are others who feel that more specific micro labels are the best way to describe their identity. And to be fair, both of them kind of like coexist in the community at the moment. Um, 
Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Dominic, I wonder, from what you were saying earlier, this um, suggestion that Bi Plus is a kind of new thing, from from what you were saying earlier, there's it's actually always been an implicit understanding for people within our community. Is it, have we slightly oversimplified things in order for cishet mainstream society to get their heads around our experiences? I mean, I, I think that inevitably we look at things through a kind of cishet lens, right? So, um, so we, you know, we use the word straight to describe cis, cishet because, you know, the idea of something being normal um, you know, um, gives the impression that, that other identities are, are less normal. And I'm afraid that, you know, perhaps not less, less normal, but less usual and less usualized in society, I think is true. Um, so for me, but whether it's bi or bi plus or all these things is, is kind of incidental, I guess. I think it's wonderful that young people are choosing new and more diverse language in order to talk about their identities really, really specifically. Certainly when I was young, I, I knew gay people and I knew straight people. When, when I was first coming out, I didn't really know that I could be bisexual. And I didn't come out as bisexual, crucially, until I knew. I needed the language, and I think a lot of people do. So I'm massively in favour of language getting more and more specific and people having more and more colourful ways to describe their sexual orientation and their gender, as we see from, from many of our young ambassadors. Um, yeah, I hope okay. does that answer your question. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> We're going to have to pause for a music break very soon, but Lo is literally straining at the leash to say <laughs> something. Tell me what you want to say. I just wanted to jump in with a quick uh, fact check that uh, this is a misconception I had that the word pansexual is very new. But in fact, if you look back through by history, you can find examples of the word pansexual, omnisexual, plurisexual being used as far back as like the 70s and 80s and kind of some Ooh. of those other words pluri pan etc kind of went underground for a bit and so i would say instead of calling pansexual a new word it's maybe having a revival thanks Ooh. to say tumblr and a lot more like online queer spaces so if we define both labels in terms of our attraction to other genders we talked about bisexuality supposedly literally meaning two pan meaning any does it depend on our view of gender? Does our view of gender come into it, Dominic? Um, does our view of gender come into it in what sense? In, in the, which label we feel is the best fit for us? I, do you know, maybe, I I, th I suspect not, actually. I, I, I really suspect, I, I agree with what Lois said. I think, so, do you know, I think probably... The, there is a determiner uh, around age. So I think a lot of people my age do use the word bi. And I some I do sometimes wonder, you know, if if I was if I was Ramsey's age, whether or not the word Pam would be a better fit. Um, but I, I don't believe that bi people and Pam people look at gender inherently differently. Um, I do think that bi people and pan people perhaps look at gender differently to straight people and gay people. Um, not, not, not in a bad way, but, but just because I think if you, if your, if your sexual orientation is, is restricted, if you like, to, to one, uh, to one gender, then I think, and, and we have, have this word monosexual that we use in, in bisexuality, of course, that is slightly different uh, to looking at all people uh, and potentially being attracted to all people. So I wouldn't say there's a difference between bi and pan people, in my view, um, but I think there probably is a difference between bi people, pan people and monosexual people. 
Okay, brilliant. Right, let's confront one of the biggest issues in this discussion <laughs> head on. It's already came up. Bef- it already came up before the break. The idea or the accusation we've all seen it that bisexuality excludes trans people. Ramses earlier said it doesn't. Um, but if we, I was going to say, if we accept that trans people, if we accept trans people as the gender of their identification, then how can bisexuality be transphobic? You know, what is the, you know, from Lois, from your point of view, also, you know, trans isn't a gender in itself. It's a description of how these people got to living mm. in the correct gender. So what's, how would you answer the accusation that bisexuality is inherently transphobic? I mean, it's just completely false. <laughs> um, as you've said, you know, uh, trans men are men, trans women are women, and non-binary people are non-binary. Um and so if you're attracted to that gender, you're attracted to them whether they're trans or not. And if you make a distinction, and I'm getting into very murky water here, you know, if someone says <laughs> I'm attracted to women but not attracted to trans women, I would say, well, that's transphobic. Um, and so a lot of what bi activists say when, and the, the accusation often comes from the term bi meaning two. Um, and what a lot of bi people say is that, well, October is not the eighth month. <laughs> no one's accusing October of being the eighth month. Um, and mm. so the word has evolved and the word has come to have a different meaning. Um, mm. Well, it's interesting because Dominic said earlier when he was um, expressing his own identification that um, it's not genitalia that does it for him in terms of sexual attraction. But as the two gay men in the room, you and I, Dan, we have to admit that in our culture, there is a big focus on body parts, in on hookup apps, even dating apps. It's quite usual to share pictures of a particular part of the body. <laughs> yes, this is murky waters, but it is connected and it is relevant. And let's go there. Um, what what do you think we as a community are tend to be attracted to? Is it gen? I mean, Dominic has said he's attracted to gen- he's attracted to someone regardless of sexual parts. Do, do you know? I was going to say regardless, rather than that, I'm not attracted to genitalia. <laughs> I think like, like lots of people, I am. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just <laughs> slightly weird thing to say on the radio. Um, but I all it is is that that's not like the determining factor for me but when it's so done when you think when you see gay men behaving as if it is the determining factor does this mean that they're only attracted to body parts or does it mean they've just not really had the opportunity to meet people a trans man for example and um you know um push their sexual attraction into areas they hadn't necessarily expected I think if we go back to what I mentioned right at the start, which was to do with the idea of when you're being trained to be a counsellor, is very much to be open-minded about everything. So if we are, if the attra- thank you, Dominic, for saying that you know people can be attracted to genitalia as well. So it doesn't feel like I'm going to be the only one who says that. But I think the thing is, is that you know when you are looking for a relationship, you know who cares about genitalia? You know, I think once you get married as well, it, you know, it probably doesn't really matter anyway. Because do you, anyway, I'm about to go into murky waters about whether or not married couples sleep with each other. But some people, for some people, genitalia is important. So. Um, are we saying collectively that it shouldn't be and that these people are wrong? Are there any circumstances in which attraction to genitalia is fine? 
you can't have a relationship with genitalia. It won't, it won't, you know, console you when you need consoling. It won't make you, you know, well, it might make you happy in a particular way, but it's not going to give you that full rounded happiness, is it? And I think that's the... Uh, sorry, um, go um, on, just finish your points, and then I mean, Dominic's got something to say. Go on. Sorry. Dan, have you, have you, have you said what you wanted to say? I feel like I've Okay, great. So, Dominic, go on. You were going to say about attraction to... Genitalia. I mean, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with attraction to genitalia. You know, um, I think, uh, I, I, I don't think that they're they're sort of mutually exclusive. I think you can be attracted to genitalia, and and you can be attracted to different genitalia the same way. And this is a kind of bit of a cliche within bi circles, but the same way you can be attracted to someone blonde hair or brown hair. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that when you say I'm attracted to someone regardless of genitalia, it sounds a little, can sound a little bit pious, or at least that's how I, I think that I sound. It's, it's, you know, it sounds a bit like I'm, I'm sort of judging people that, that aren't like that. And actually I'm not that I, I really think, you know, desire, desire doesn't fit ethical frameworks very, very well, I think. And, and actually um, what, what we should be doing is not saying one is better than the other, but actually saying, you know, whatever you're into, you should be free to express that. Okay, fantastic. Ramses, how do you feel about this subject? Um, and do you agree with what Dominic's just said? Yeah, I agree. I mean, people have preferences around genitalia and they have preferences around, you know, any other physical characteristics. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's, that's it. That's just a preference. You usually can't really guess someone's genitalia by looking at them. Um, and I'm pretty sure everyone who's been, from my experience, enough attracted to me probably is not the same amount of people with same genitalia. So, you know, <laughs> most of the time you don't really know who you're attracted to and you can't really try and guess what their genitalia is. So what's wrong is not the preference itself. What's wrong is the assumption and kind of like the expectation that comes with that. Yeah, but I think, do you think we're conditioned to have certain expectations to, um, you know, that... Um, People haven't haven't considered that they may be attracted to a trans man and it may be different to the genitalia they were expecting. Do you know what I mean? We don't have we don't really have that as an option when we're growing up, do we, Lo? Um, you know, all we're told is that, you know, for the most part, this is what a man is like, this is what's attractive about a man. This is you're nodding. Yeah, I mean I think an assumption has been made in this whole discussion that uh trans people don't have the genitalia that's expected of their gender so for example you know there are a lot of trans men who have penises a lot of trans women who have vaginas um and of course the opposite is also true because it depends on your your transition journey about whether you want to go through surgery and medical transition and all of that kind of stuff and so the idea that you know um a cis gay man might not be attracted to a trans man on the assumption that he has a vagina is also making a big assumption because he might not. Well, funnily enough, mm. um, when I joined in that side of things, I was thinking more about the way that certain mm. gay, you know, I was talking about gay men exchanging pics and talking about mm. size and it can get very like cartoon character, <laughs> what it means to be a man mm. physically. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And it was more just how basic it is. But sexual attraction can sometimes be basic, can't it, Dominic? You're, you look like you agree with <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I do. And I think, in a way, I think there's sort of, there's a few things involved here, isn't there? There's sort of masculinity. And masculinity plays out in really interesting ways in gay circles, I think. Um, there's, there's an assumption that, you know, gay circles or LGBT communities are somehow outside 
you know, very masculine tropes. And I, I don't think that's true. I think that all the things you're describing are are really classic examples of men when they get together talking about penis size and that sort of thing. Obviously, if they're attracted to each other, it plays out in different ways and they might share pictures and talk about it and that sort of thing. As, as, but I don't... As, can I just, can I just say, just <laughs> yeah. to interrupt you, Dominic, as I've heard straight men do about female body parts, actually just of, to come to the defence of my fellow gay man. <laughs> well, well and, and I think this is it. You know, the, I, I don't believe that this behaviour is, um, is, this behaviour is perhaps not healthy and there are conversations to be had about that. I don't know that it's transphobic if, if, if we're just talking about those aspects that, that you're saying there. Okay, right. So our discussion is about actually the labels, bisexual and pansexual. We went down that route because of the accusation that we have all heard several times. It's a very common accusation that bisexual um, is, the the term is transphobic. So we did have to go there. But let's, we've only got a few minutes left. Let's think about um, labels again. Um, Dominic hinted about this earlier, said something about labels changing and, you know, what's going to happen in the future. What do you think... Um, Dan, what do you think is the future of the labels, bisexual and pansexual, or just labels in general? Might we even be surprised by a new label on the block, which changes things? I think I don't think we should be. And I think as a historian and as someone who has worked in collections where you need to put labels on things, I think the thing that our duty is to record that change, is to record you know, the changes, the glossary changes from one meaning to another meaning. And it is for us to record it so that we can see what has changed, why it's changed. And I think that's really important for us to be able to look back and make sure that we understand our history as well. Okay, Lois, very quickly, do you think an increase in labels is good or bad for the LGBTQ plus community? I am in the camp that it's good. One of the most exciting things for me as a bi activist, as a queer activist in general, is seeing uh, Gen Z people in particular, uh, because they're so connected and educated now, coming up with all these different terms. Some people call them micro labels. I think that's so exciting that for me the way i describe it is kind of previously we had the primary colors you know lgbt and now that we've learned all about those we're getting into shades and into contrast and i think that's really really exciting um ramses would you agree that um the proliferation of labels now do you see labels as a means of self-expression um and you know do you see um all these new labels as exciting are you do you feel positively about it as low does yeah 100% i think it's very empowering especially for young people to be able to to use all these labels like when i was growing up um you know even just finding my own labels as you know as as trans or actually it was a struggle and the fact that now it's going to be easier and easier for people to be able to access these terms and to describe their, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation in more detail, I think it's it's really amazing. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Dominic, I already know you like lots of labels. Can you tell us, just to round things off, um, your yeah. amazing charity, Just Like Us, is looking for more ambassadors. Can you tell us what anybody should do if they want to be the next Ramses? Absolutely. So if you're between 18 and 25, please come over to our website, www.justlikeus.org, and you'll get the chance to take part in an amazing series of volunteering activities and training uh, and represent the LGBT community in all its beauty and diversity um, in schools, workplaces and in the media all across the UK. Fantastic. Dominic Ramses, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Now, finally, Pride events are starting to make their return after the pandemic. It was Margate Pride last weekend. Manchester Pride is coming up over the bank holiday weekend. Both events have had to be streamlined, COVID-proofed. We're going to be discussing the post-pandemic future of Pride in a later episode. So all these contentious issues around the Pride movement and where it's heading, we will discuss them later on. But in the meantime, I just wanted to have a little light chat at the end by talking about our favourite memories of prides gone by. Dan, what's the, what's your best memory of a pride event? My best memory of pride is probably donning a pair of golden tights and a rainbow bling on my back with the V&A logo and Museum Pride London. We all kind of just marched and it was a conglomerate of 30 different museums, galleries, archives. Uh, hang on, gallery, libraries, archives, museums, glands <laughs> that paraded down the street and people were chanting, we love history, we love history as we walked down the street as they saw the logos of all these wonderful, you know, uh, museums and people who are working in these LGBTQ plus uh, uh, groups that are part of it. Can I, can I do one more as well? Yes. There's going to be a memory that I'm going to have so pride in hull uh, the group they've just opened an exhibition at the Ferns Art Galleries and it's called Pride in Our City and to bring back the talk to statues as well is <laughs> I'm going to be catching up with the gold man of Hull who is one of the former co-chairs of Pride in Hull and is an amazing activist as well he usually dons like you know he dresses up as one of those gold statues you know, he just, oh. you know those posing statues he's going to take me through and show me the history of Hull and Pride in Hull and that exhibition's open until December so if you're in the area do drop by and have a look because it's great they've, got, they've involved the youth groups They've involved all the wonderful charities nearby just to tell the history of LGBTQ plus whole. Fantastic. And how about you, Lo? Have you had some good prides in your time? I'm going to I'm gonna pull it down and I'm going to say a memory and an upcoming memory. Go on. So my favourite memory is I was involved in the first Buy Float project in 2017. It turned out that Pride in London had never had a bisexual float in all of its 48-year history. And oh so, my God, I'm literally, nobody can see, but I am open-mouthed <laughs> at that. So myself and a group of activists got together and we did it all ourselves, no funding. We hired a van, we made uh, big furry purple letters that said buy plus and we like literally nailed it to the side of this van that we'd hired. And we had a walking group and we had the first Buy Pride flow and it was just incredible because often bisexuality gets overlooked in Pride marches. Um, and it was so exciting to see people at Prides who'd never seen a bi float just lighting up as we came past. So that's my favourite memory. Well, it's interesting. Can I just say, with both of your memories, you've mentioned the response of the spectators. And one of the things that I was going to say, we'll come back, don't worry, Lo, in terms of your thing you're looking forward to. But I remember going to Pride in London in 2015 when it was just a day or two, I think, after the US Supreme Court had ruled in favour of equal marriage and it was an amazingly bright and sunny day and it literally felt like all of society had come out <laughs> to cheer us on and actually it's interesting isn't it that we've all mentioned being cheered on um because that's it is a celebration but it's a protest as well and isn't it and if we're protesting you it's an act of communication you want that communication to be getting through lo tell us what you're looking forward to yeah so um there is a bi-community picnic coming up. It's going to be on the 11th of September. Originally, it was part of uh, an alternative to Pride in London, but of course, unfortunately, Pride in London isn't going ahead. But as the picnic is outside and going to be socially distanced, it's happening in Hyde Park from 1 till 6. Uh, you don't have to be bi. You just have to be a bi ally and supporter. 
Um, so yeah, come along. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have Jenga, giant Jenga that we're going to write biphobic stereotypes on that you can then <laughs> topple the biphobic stereotypes. It's going to be a lot of fun. I love that. And what about, so um, Dan, you were talking to us earlier about your upbringing in Melbourne and your um, heritage, your cultural heritage as a Vietnamese man. Um, have you been to any prides in other countries? I I can't remember, but I do remember seeing uh, when I was living here lots and lots of change in Vietnam. So there is a fantastic group uh, in Vietnam now that tells, makes these wonderful videos about pride and history of pride and, and the history of queer people in Vietnamese, which I love seeing. And one of the most remarkable things I saw was my own mum's uh, high school uh, when she was growing up. They uh, had one of the largest rainbow flags I've ever seen, uh, six floors, you know, a rainbow flag being flown in her high school. And I thought that was wonderful. And, yeah. and you know, being able to converse with my mum because mum, funnily enough, has become this sort of like uh, this person that people go to in the Vietnamese community. And they kind of go, oh, so uh, my son just came out and uh, here your son's gay. <laughs> <laughs> How does she feel about that? I love that. I, I rather, I think she enjoys that status. And she kind of, every time I come back to Melbourne, I haven't been back for a while because, you know, this. But uh, when, I, when I come back, I kind of get a rolling list from mum going, oh, so I met this person and, and her son is. And then I, I went to this place and I met some more queer people. So I think, you know, this is her way of showing acceptance, which I, I think, you know, given the journey that we've been on together, it's, it's rather nice. It's fantastic. And Lo, have you ever been to a Pride in another country or culture? I haven't. I A few years ago I went to Amsterdam and I missed Amsterdam Pride by like a day, which I'm really sad about. But I was just going to add that that has started happening to my parents. Oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> Go on. You two in your parallel lives. We started <laughs> off by talking about your parallel lives. Let's end by talking about them. Since my book came out, my parents have had a lot of their kind of friends who have children who've come out as bi or non-binary or, or really any flavour of quirks. Like I said, in a rural community, there's less resources who were kind of asking my parents to... I got kind of annoyed at my dad because I gave him a first edition signed copy of my book, obviously. And he, you know, he's lent it out to several of his friends who have queer children. And I'm like, they need to buy a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Right, on that upbeat note, I'm going to draw things to a close for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Dan Vo, Lois Shearing, Flair McInnes, Michael Bronsky, Dominic Arnold and Ramses Oliva. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or if you just want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. I am on at Matt Cam Writer or if you can prefer, you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday.